So Mark chapter 10. And I just want to confess to you that one of a preacher's worst fears, actually it's a nightmare. Um, one thing is to forget to check his clothing before he comes up and preaches, right? <laughs> and have something unzipped, right? That's a preacher's worst nightmare, I guess. It has happened, okay? Um, but the second worst fear of a preacher is to sound like a broken record to people and to sound like you're just kicking a dead horse and that you're just a one-note Johnny. Because listen, a preacher wants to be fresh. A preacher wants to be interesting. He wants the things that he's talking about from Scripture to resonate with you and to hit you and to challenge you and to help you. Um, that's his desire. He doesn't want to sound like a broken record. Um, that's why we always want to teach new materials. And, and if any preacher was given a truth serum, okay, he would tell you that he has preferences. There are things in the Bible that I naturally drift toward. There are passages I understand. I think I get them. I understand them. And I love them. And I like talking about them. They resonate with me, and so I expect they resonate with other people. And if you would ask me on any given Sunday, hey, preach on whatever you want, I would go right here to this kind of passage, this kind of psalm, this kind of epistle, right? Um, and there are other things that don't resonate so much with you and don't resonate with people, but you preach on them because you come to them in the Bible, right? But if a preacher only preaches on things that resonate with him, um, that's going to probably be the theme of the church. That's going to be the culture of the church. It is. Every church has a, a specific culture, and very often it's the cultures that the preacher has set by the themes of his preaching. That's why I do not trust myself in this way. That's the reason I'm going through the Gospel of Mark. Because you know what I'm preaching on the very next week? Whatever the next passage is. Whether I want to or not, I have to. I mean, I can take a little break. You guys know me. Like, today we're going to preach on a psalm. You know, we're going to take a little break. It's like, he didn't want to preach on the next passage in Mark, did he? Not always true. Sometimes you're just wrestling with the implications of a passage. But that's the reason at this church, I go through books of the Bible. We went through 1 Corinthians. We're going through Mark's Gospel. I don't know what we'll go through next. But I don't trust myself enough to say, you know what, God's just going to tell me what to say because it's usually the things that I want to say. I don't know where the Holy Spirit starts and I stop, you know. Um, but let me say it this way. I hope this is making sense. Certain churches have certain themes and it's because the pastor preaches on one thing over and over and the whole church kind of adopts that philosophy and that method like feeding the poor and fighting poverty. You'll find that's the real emphasis at a lot of churches. And these are good, by the way. Don't get the wrong idea. Okay, feeding the poor, fighting poverty, ending racism, defending equality, talking about the right to life and ending abortion. All those things are noble, commendable. You should do them. Other things are maybe do certain doctrines or theological perspectives rise to the surface, like interpreting prophecy and talking about the second coming of Christ every single week. That's the focus, right? Or focusing on spiritual gifts, spiritual warfare, prevailing prayer, or maybe... Some preacher's things are is defending creationism, a literal interpretation of a young earth, so Genesis 1 through 3, apologetics, reform theology, counseling. If you've been around and been a Christian for very long, you're going to see that certain churches either adopt, uh, that's the thing they're advocating for and the thing they're defending and fighting against, or that's the doctrine that they emphasize every single week. And those things are all great. They're all wonderful. They're all amazing. Our church engages in them. But, there's always a but, right? Those are not the ultimate mission of Jesus. 
And those things are not the ultimate message of the church. Let me say that again. Those are good. They're great. They're commendable. They're biblical. Every Christian ought to find himself or herself, I think, engaged in contemplating those things at some level and some degree. But those aren't the ultimate mission of Jesus, and they're not the ultimate message of the church. The gospel is. The gospel is. And by gospel, I want to make sure we're all using the same definition, same dictionary. I mean the message that Jesus Christ came to rescue a sinful and fallen humanity. He came to rescue and renew and restore and redeem. That was his ultimate mission, which meant he had to die. Jesus came to this earth to accomplish one thing, to go to the cross, to die, and arise from the grave. That's his ultimate mission. And because that's his ultimate mission, that's our ultimate message. Now, all those other things flow out of that. They can't eclipse it. They can't supplant it. Does that make sense? And so I want to be really careful as a pastor to make sure that I'm following that example because if you read the Bible, that is the example that is set for us. And I find it again, if you've been with us for very long and you've been, we've been going through Mark's gospel together for some time, I'm trying to take bigger chunks so you're not bored, right? And get lost in parsing a Greek verb or, you know, going so slow that it's boring. But this is chapter 10. And if you read this, if you just read this passage with us, do you not get the deja vu effect? Doesn't it feel like, wait a minute, hang on a second, pastor. I, I feel like Groundhog Day is going on here, you know, like the Bill Murray effect. I'm waking up and you're preaching on the same thing again. It seems like we just heard this and you'd be right. We have just heard this because this is the, not the first time, not the second time, this is the third time in Mark's gospel that Jesus has talked about his ultimate mission. Third time. And this is the third time that the disciples have misunderstood it and misapplied it. And so guess what? We're going to talk about this again, and I'm going to try to do it in a fresh and interesting way because that's my job as a pastor, to communicate old truths to you in fresh ways. Um, so let's look at this together. So the first time Jesus talked about this, Mark chapter 8, two chapters ago. I'm not even going to read all that. It's the exact same thing that we heard today. He did it on the road to Jerusalem, probably days earlier when this happened. Just three days earlier, he said this. Chapter 9, guess what? Deja vu, Groundhog Day. Jesus is talking about it again. And look, notice their reaction. He's talking about the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. By the, by the way, that word delivered keeps cropping up in these passages. It's a powerful Greek word, paradidome, and it means betrayed or handed over. <clears throat> now, when they heard that, the Son of Man is going to be betrayed, it scared them because they thought he's going to Jerusalem. That always represented opposition. Every time Jesus was in, Jerusalem's, uh, was in Jerusalem, it was like showdown at the OK Corral, like a Western, like a Clint Eastwood Western. You know? Things are about to go south. So it scared them. They thought, this is not going to go well. But look at the reaction. But they did not understand the saying, and they were afraid to ask him. And then look at, look at Mark chapter 10. Same thing. Almost the identically same thing here. So Jesus is, it's, it seems like the record is broken, and he is on repeat. Why is that? He talked about this all the time, because that was his mission, and the disciples didn't get it. And listen, I don't want to offend you, but I want to tell you a truth you may already know about yourself. They didn't get it, 
And they were his disciples, and they spent three years with him. And he's God. <laughs> he communicated perfectly. So guess what, friends? Guess what's true of us? We don't quite get it either. I don't care how long you've been a Christian. You still sometimes misunderstand, get offended by, and misapply the gospel. And I will tell you this. I will tell you this. Very small errors and mistakes in our understanding of the gospel can result in very big problems in the Christian life. In fact, I would be so bold today as to tell you that every spiritual problem that a Christian has, every spiritual problem, spiritual problem, I'm going to qualify that, is either, one, a misunderstanding of the gospel, or two, a misapplication of the gospel. I'm a counselor, and I meet with a lot of people, and I'm always listening for at what point are they not believing these promises that God told them. And they're believing a lie instead, right? Because every time we disobey God, we're believing a lie. And there's a corresponding gospel promise that goes along with it. So a good counselor is always a good listener. And they're listening for areas in that person's life where the gospel's not sinking in and taking root and exuding its influence and its power, right? So this passage proves this. Very small errors in your understanding of the gospel lead to very big problems. Like, for example walking up to Jesus and saying, hey God, can I be on your right hand and your left hand when you're in your glory? <laughs> is that not ironic? Jesus is just talking about his death and they're arguing about who's the greatest and who's going to have, who, they're jockeying for the greatest position of power. See, we look at this and we say, what a bunch of idiots. That's what we, I, seriously, that's what I, I read this and I think, those knuckleheads, they just don't get it. But you know what God's been telling me this week? You knucklehead, you just don't get it. I was talking to a guy at lunch the other day, and I said, look, do you realize, man, look back 10 years. I know I say this a lot, but it bears repeating. Look back at yourself 10 years ago. Just think right now. Go back. You're looking at yourself 10 years ago. Be honest. Are there some areas that you would like to just slap yourself around and say, man, you idiot. What are you thinking? What are you doing? What's wrong with you? You're a fool, right? Okay, since that's true, I want to tell you the application. 10 years from now, guess what? You're going to look back at yourself right now and you're going to say, what's wrong with you? You idiot. Don't you get it? Don't you understand? That ought to make us really humble people. Really humble. Quick to listen. Slow to speak. Slow to anger. It ought to make us less dogmatic on areas that are gray areas and not black and white, like the gospel. It ought to make us less dogmatic uh, less argumentative, less arrogant. I mean, it ought to kill and crush arrogance, the gospel shit anyway. But it didn't for the disciples. So we need, and that's, this is the outline. I guess I should start with the outline here. Three lessons for disciples. So they're disciples, we're disciples. We need these same lessons now that Jesus was teaching them thousands of years ago. Uh, and just to give you a little I'm a preacher. I study passages. I hope to preach them in a way that's impactful. This is a, it's called a narrative. This is just a story, but it's true. It's not, it's not fiction. I get those backwards. Forget that. This is a true story. It's not a myth, okay? This is not once upon a time or in a galaxy far, far away or in a dark hole in the ground kind of thing. This is true history. And we're reading this, and, and yet we're going to take some application away from it. How, how do we take a story and, and have a to-do list from it? Well, it's because the Holy Spirit is going to use this to show us things about ourselves. So what Jesus was teaching his disciples then, we need the same lesson. So, hence, the outline is three lessons for disciples. Point number one, we need 
more exposure to the gospel. We need more exposure to the gospel. We need this message to be repeated and to be reapplied in fresh and new, relevant ways for us because we forget. We do. We forget. In fact, to help you understand this, I would just compare our need for the gospel as Christians to uh, maybe oxygen for humans. You can't live very long without oxygen, can you? My father-in-law's in here. Al, how long can you hold your breath, Al? Yeah, he can, he's being modest. He can hold his breath about five minutes underwater. I ain't ever seen anything like it. I'm jealous, you know. My wife tells me that when she was younger, they used to go out to the, uh, the land, what's that, Blue Springs, where you can go down in the cave, and I guess he would disappear with just a mask on, and she would think, Dad's dead. He got in a cave, and he drowned, you know. And he would pop up, hey, um, world record is 22 minutes, by the way. And I don't recommend trying that, because you can hurt yourself, right? That's not a long time when you think about how long we live. 22, you can take the biggest breath of oxygen and hold it, and kids do to protest, don't they? <laughs> but you need oxygen. God made you. In fact, I believe that God so created this world with built-in reminders that we miss a lot. You need oxygen or you'll die, dude, okay? You're going to die if you don't breathe. And yet Christians, we, we tend to think of the gospel as like a vaccination. You get it when you're young, you know, if you believe in it, and some people, you know, I'm not, not even going to get into that. If you get vaccinations, okay, you get them when you're young, preferably, I guess, and then you're good. You don't need two vaccination shots. You need one, right? And we think the gospel is the same thing. You get this, and you enter the kingdom, and then you don't need it anymore. You put it on a shelf and get it out when you do outreach or evangelism. Or we think of it like a ticket to the fairgrounds. You present it at the door, and then they rip it up, and you're good. You're in. You get to enjoy all all the deep things, right? All the new, flashy, better stuff. So you just kind of, you graduate from the gospel and you get to the deeper and the more interesting things. But no, the Bible says there is nothing deeper or more interesting or more powerful than this message that Jesus keeps repeating for the disciples and that we keep finding over and over in the New Testament. In fact, the point that I think the Holy Spirit makes by giving us a whole bunch of books in the New Testament is that we need, that assumes we need more exposure to the gospel than we got in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Have you ever thought about that? If this is just enough, why do we have all these epistles? 13 epistles from Paul, some from John, some from Peter. Because we need the Holy Spirit to continually show us and apply the gospel in new and fresh ways. Yeah, the gospel is like the oxygen we need as humans. Or if you think of a plant, things that a plant needs to grow. Sunlight, water, carbon dioxide, I guess, right? I'm not a botanist or whatever it is, horticulturist. My son loves uh, making ramps in our yard to jump his bike. Anybody else have that problem? And you know what I have all the time because my kids don't put their stuff away because I'm a terrible father and I don't teach them to, right? Or I'm a type A and I do it myself. There's all these dead spots of grass in our yard. They're not really dead. They're yellow. They're yellow. You know why? Because if you put a little piece of plywood on grass in Florida in the summer and you leave it there for two days, the grass goes into uh, panic mode. It's amazing how God made his creation. It goes into panic mode and it turns yellow to preserve the energy or, I don't know, I wish I had the articulation as an Arkansan to explain to you. It, it, it like turns yellow, it tries to conserve its, its strength and energy to survive, and it actually lengthens trying to get to sunlight so it can survive. Isn't that interesting? And we're the same way with the gospel. We don't realize it, 
But when we neglect, forget, or deprive ourselves of the gospel, bad things happen. They do. If you think of the human body and you think of the immune system, I was talking to Sarah about that this morning. Um, your immune system is amazing. And if you don't have it or if it is weak, you're going to have major problems in your life. Autoimmune disorders can happen. All kinds of havoc can get wreaked on your body. And so we do things to boost and strengthen our immune system, right? That's one approach. You can either do that or you can, and some people have to do this, you can protect yourself from germs the rest of your life, right? Now listen to me. Don't miss this. This is what some Christians that, that I know, and I've been one of them, instead of strengthening and empowering ourselves with the gospel of Christ, instead of doing that, you know what some people do? They just protect themselves from things the rest of their life as a Christian. For example, criticism. How many people in here enjoy receiving feedback? Listen, you know what that word means. All that means is criticism. That's just a glorified word for it, right? How many people in here enjoy getting criticism? I don't. I don't like it. In fact, I hate it because usually it's bad, right? Hey, brother, can I have lunch with you? I like to talk about, you know, fill in the blank, your life, your parenting. I'd really like to meet with you about your kids. Oh, I'm really looking forward to that, right? So you know, you know what we do? Or maybe I want to talk to you about your preaching. No, let's not. I'm busy right now. So do you know what we do? Some people go the rest of their life cutting off critics. You know what you're doing? Instead of building and strengthening your immune system, where you're able to handle that, you're not radically insecure, and, and you're not always defensive. You know people like that? Christians, they just throw up a wall of defense. They can't hear it. I, I used to be like that. Ten years ago, you could not talk to me about my parenting or my preaching or my ministry or pretty much anything that you had a negative feedback. I couldn't handle it, folks. I could not handle it because the gospel, I was a Christian, but the gospel hadn't gone down deep enough and make me resilient to stuff like that. And here's what I mean. Jesus has already declared a verdict over our life as, as Christians. You know that's what the gospel says, right? You are forgiven and you are blameless, and you are accepted. You belong to me, and nothing can ever take you away from me. That's what the gospel says. And so if a little bitty critic over here is going, me, 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 that's okay, because the one whose verdict matters the most has already rendered judgment over you, right? You're blameless. You're okay. It doesn't matter what they say, right? Seriously. Yeah, glory to God. It, and I'm still learning. I still have days where I'm like, I can't handle that right now. I got a weak immune system. Let me go study the gospel and I'll get back to you, right? Because that's the only thing in the Bible that is said to have power. Power and strength. Over and over in the Bible it says the gospel is, not was, is the power of God for salvation. And by salvation it means justification, sanctification, glorification. There is no other power in the Christian life. So, if you find a church that's focusing on things other than the gospel, you are going to find a group of people who weather under criticism, who languish under suffering. I mean, seriously, guys, the gospel changes everything. It changes how you view suffering. It changes how you view success, honestly. Some Christians can't handle success because when they get it, they're so clinging to it for their worth and their value and their identity, they're scared it's going to be taken away. Instead of their identity being, I belong to God, Right? So it cuts both ways, the gospel does. And I'm getting way ahead of myself. That was point number one, though. We need more exposure to the gospel. 
And that's what Jesus is doing in this passage. Check this out. He says in verse 32, they were on the road, they were going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. And this is really cool. And they were amazed. They were amazed at his resilience. They know where he's going. They know he's hated there. And they were amazed. And look at the next thing. And those who followed were afraid. They were amazed and they were afraid. They had never seen anything like this before. They had never seen a human being so determined, so committed, so resilient, so courageous, and so fearless. It blew them away. And Jesus knew they were afraid. And he's a gracious shepherd and savior. So you know what he did? Look at what he did here. And taking the 12 again, he took them aside here. He pulled the car over. <laughs> he pulled the car over. And he began to tell them what was going to happen to him. Because Jesus wants his disciples to be in the know. They're in the circle. No surprises. He says, look guys, we got a mission here. Don't forget the mission. Don't get sidetracked. I know that you think something different about me when I tell you I'm the Messiah than what I'm about to tell you. So I need to remind you. I am a king and I will be crowned, but I'm going to the cross first. There's got to be a cross before there's a crown. There's got to be suffering before there's glory. And check out what he says here at verse 33. He took him aside and he said, See, we are going up to Jerusalem and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priest and the scribes and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles and they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him and after three days he will rise. By the way, this is another sermon. We can't go really, really slow through Mark. But the astonishing accuracy and details of that prophecy are worth a sermon in and of itself. This is before this is going to happen, and he says everything that's going to happen. They're going to mock me. They're going to spit on me. Another version says they're going to pull my beard out. The Jews are going to hand their Messiah over to the Gentiles, and only the Gentiles, the Romans at that time, could execute a man. The Jews couldn't. So all this is exact detailed prophecy saying all this is going to happen to me. But this is interesting the way he says it because he says, see, we're going up to Jerusalem. I just love that. That just grips me. Jesus pulls them aside and he pulls us aside and he says, watch, watch what I'm about to do. Watch what I'm about to do for you. And don't ever forget it. That's what he's telling them. And he still says that. He's still saying that today. The, new, the rest of the New Testament says that. Jesus says, hey, hey, watch what I'm about to do for you and don't forget it. And you know what the rest of the New Testament says? Hey, hey. Look what Jesus did for you and don't ever forget it. Friends, that's the gospel. I mean, the whole Bible's about that. We get lost in details and marginal doctrines and we forget the central, most powerful thing that God wants us to walk away with. The whole Old Testament says, watch what God's going to do for you. Jesus says, hey, watch what I'm doing for you right now. And the rest of the New Testament says, look what Jesus did for you. And he knows we, we have gospel amnesia. We forget, we neglect it, we ignore it, we marginalize it, we trivialize it. We make it cheap and shallow, and so we have things like the Lord's Supper. This do in remembrance of me. That's why we do that every first Sunday. We have baptism, which is a picture of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Because we need those reminders, don't we? And this is an ordinance. What I'm doing right now, preaching the good news to you, is an ordinance to remind us who we are, sinners in need of God's grace, right? And who He is. He's a Savior who died for us and was glad to do it. I got so many different places I could go right now. Um, let me do this. D.A. Carson said this. He said, I fear 
that the cross, and by the way, when I say cross, I'm just, that's another word for gospel. The cross is the piece of wood that Jesus was crucified on. It's just a symbol of his death, burial, and resurrection, okay? Cross equals gospel in this sermon. I fear that the cross, without ever being disowned, is constantly in danger of being dismissed from the central place it must occupy. Respectable New Testament scholar that's probably preached through the whole New Testament. He gets it. He gets it. He understands it. My ministry was radically impacted. And if I've told you this story before, I apologize. It bears repeating. And I told you this is going to feel more like a family talk. Maybe it is. One of my heroes of the faith has gone on to be with the Lord. His name was Martin Lloyd-Jones. He was a preacher in London um, who was just amazing. And the way he preaches, the way he preached, uh, the way he wrote books, he wrote a bunch of books, just resonated with me. And I never really knew why I enjoyed his preaching and teaching and writing better than other people's. And then I read his biography by a man named Ann Murray. And you can ask my wife. That was, I think, right after we got married. And I cried. I cried all the time reading his biography. And I would read it to her out loud. I'm like, man, I want to be like this. I want to have a ministry like this guy had. Because he helps people. People would come to his church, drug addicts, alcoholics, people hooked on pornography, people that were hopeless. Other churches couldn't help them. They would go to Martin Lloyd-Jones' church, sit under his preaching, sit under his influence and his ministry, and their lives will be transformed. And I'm this young pastor, just married, and I'm like, what in the world is different about, it, about this guy than everybody else? How come other preachers can't help people? And then I read that there was a dramatic and radical event that happened early in his ministry. He was preaching in Wales. He was young, just called into the ministry in his early 30s. Thank God he was young and not old when this happened. And he was preaching, and an old, retired Welsh pastor heard him preach. And he walked up to him after the sermon and he pulled him aside. And he said, young man, you are a gifted preacher. And I hear great doctrinal themes in your preaching. And you are hammering sin. And you're preaching the Bible. But, there's always a but, isn't there? He said, but I find that you have made very little room for the cross in your preaching. Now, I just got to be honest with you. For, for somebody to say that to a preacher... That's pretty much, I would, if you said that to me, hey, Tommy, enjoy your preaching, enjoy your ministry, love you, buddy, you're great, you're awesome, all that, but man, I really wish you would make more room in your preaching for the cross. You might as well tell Baskin Robbins that they don't understand ice cream, or a NASCAR driver that he doesn't get engines. Um, I mean, I, a rider, he doesn't get grammar. I mean, there's nothing worse that a preacher could hear. Nothing worse. And that absolutely leveled Martin Lloyd-Jones, leveled him. He took it very serious, but thank God he didn't take it personal. <laughs> Which is a good formula, by the way. When somebody brings critique to you and love, take it serious, don't take it personal. Read the letter, pray, then wad it up and throw it away, right? Or burn it, <laughs> whatever. But he took it serious, and he went back to his office, and he locked himself inside his office. His wife said for like two days, and he went back to the New Testament. He bought a book on the atonement and the cross. He emerged from that office, and his ministry was never the same. And guess what he did in his preaching from then on? Guess what he made room for? The cross. And guess what? People flocked to hear him because they weren't getting that at other churches. Those other churches were preaching on B doctrines and C doctrines and F doctrines. And he was preaching on the cardinal doctrine of the atonement of Jesus Christ. And people could, it was like people were starving in London and he was handing out cold water, right? 
And his ministry dramatically changed from that point on. And that, that had an impact on me. And hopefully I'll never lose it. And one of the things that helped Martin Lloyd-Jones to see this was when he read the book of 1 Corinthians. Now, how many people know about the church at Corinth? Okay. Messed up church. Messed up. I mean, I, when I read that epistle that Paul wrote, which is the word epistle means letter, he wrote this corrective letter to the Corinthian church. And he was very gracious and very kind. He's pointing out all the struggles and problems they're having. If you were the pastor of that church and all those problems were in your congregation, you, you'd resign or, or like, you'd do something really bad to yourself maybe. It's terrible. People were getting drunk at communion. Seriously, they were getting wasted, okay? I don't know, what it was. I don't know if they brought Jack Daniels in there with them. I don't know, but they were getting hammered at the Lord's Supper, okay? There was incest going on. I know we got little ears in here, so you can fill in the blanks. There was incest going on and people weren't, even trying to confront the people that were doing it. They were proud that their church was so gracious that this is okay. Um, there was factions. There was division. There was pride. People were suing one another. People were, were following celebrity pastors. You remember this? They were saying, I'm of Paul. Well, I'm of Apollos. I'm of Peter. All these problems were going on in that church. Totally messed up church. And do you know what the Apostle Paul did when he wrote the epistle to them, the letter. You know what he said? Check this out, guys. How would you address a church like that? Would you walk up and like throw the gauntlet down and go, I'm so sick of this. Why can't you people get it together? Haven't we talked about this? And Paul planted that church and he was there for a year and a half. I mean, listen, guys, that church was under apostolic preaching for, for a year and a half and they were that messed up. So what did Paul say to them in the letter that he wrote? Check this out. And they were saying, I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Peter. And he said, Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. And not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And he went on to say, who is Paul? I wasn't crucified for you. Do you know what he's doing? He's confronting all of these problems with the power of the cross and the power of the gospel. That's just chapter 1. Look at what he says in chapter 2. And when I came to you, brothers, I didn't come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, and he could have. Paul was amazing. He said, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Did you hear that? Paul said, when I came to you, when I planted this church, and when I preached every single day, you remember, brothers and sisters, I determined to know nothing else but Christ and Him crucified. He's pointing them back to the very same power that birthed, birthed that church in the first place. And then here's the very last chapter, chapter 15. Check this out. Now, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel that I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand... That means you're standing strong like this tree that's planted deep in the ground when the storm comes. You're immovable, unshakable. And by which you are being saved if you hold fast to the word I preached to you unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance. Did you hear what he just said? I delivered to you the thing that is the most important. What is it, Paul? What I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. So what's so amazing to me is that Paul tackles all these problems in the Corinthian church, getting drunk at communion, incest, pride, arrogance, factitions, 
divisions. He just preached the gospel to them. He preached the gospel to them. You know what? That church got better. You can read the epistle, 2 Corinthians. They got better. It helped them. Other preachers wouldn't do that. They would have a totally different approach, but not Paul. So that's point one. And we got two more points, and they're a lot shorter. So relax. You're, you're going to get to Cracker Barrel in time or wherever you're going, right? <laughs> point one, we need constant exposure to the gospel. We need repeated exposure to the gospel. We need more exposure to the gospel. Hopefully, I've proved that to you. Jesus did it. The apostles did it. And churches that I think are flourishing and are strong, they're doing it. And, and I say this as a family talk because I want you to know, guys, that is my heart and my vision for this church. We're never, as long as I'm the pastor here, there's some amazing things that I can really make the, the center and the focal point of this church. Now, whatever passage I get to, whatever doctrine's there, I'm going to preach on it, right? But the central thing in this church is always going to be the gospel. This is going to be a place where people come and they encounter the saving work of Jesus. And I'm going to try to apply it to their life in the counseling room as best I can, along with Melissa. That's what this church is about. We can't be the insiders for the outsiders if we have any other message that we're holding forth. That's got to be the central thing. That's got to be the most important thing. So I'm telling you today what the Apostle Paul said. When I planted this church, I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And, and keep in mind, Paul knew a lot of other stuff. <laughs> but he said the most important thing is the gospel. Now, it's my job to keep it fresh and not say it the exact same way every week. That's going to get boring and old to you, right? But the only reason I'm able to do that is because that's the story that the entire Bible focuses on. We could turn in the Old Testament to any passage and find a path to the cross. And that's my job to do that. That's what Jesus... Remember Jesus on the road to Emmaus? After his resurrection, it says he went back in the law and Moses and the prophets and he pointed to all those things that were about himself, about his death. Isn't that amazing? The whole Bible's about this. So that's point number one. Point number two, we often fear and misunderstand the gospel. Is this true? We often fear, get offended by it, or misunderstand it. And that's right in this passage because look, right on the hills of what Jesus says James and John come up to him, and I've got to be fast here, and look what they say. They say in verse uh, 35, And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. Which is kind of an abrasive way to approach Jesus anyway. I mean, that's kind of arrogant. Hey, Jesus, we want you to do for us whatever we say. But look how, you know, the, the name of this message was Q&A with Jesus. And, you know, I just want to say this. This is a preliminary point here. Jesus is a safe person to take your questions to. You know, even the dumb ones. Even the stupid ones. Um, and I want this church to be a safe place where you can ask hard questions and you can disagree. We have a home group in our home just about every week. And I tell our people, when we get to the point in our night where we talk about the sermon, I'm not looking for flattery and compliments. I'm saying you can disagree with what I said and we can talk about it. Or you can say, I'm having a really hard time with this. We had one of the best home groups last Wednesday night. We talked about hard things. We talked about suffering. We talked about sin. We talked about when is enough enough. And it was like totally spontaneous and unplanned. And we were able to just tackle it with the gospel. I love that. I want this church to be a safe place because listen, Jesus is taking this community of disciples and he was a safe person to talk to about these things. And so he welcomed James and John. He said, hey, what do you want me to do? And they're like, we want to be your top cabinet, you know? <laughs> we, want to, <clears throat> we want to be your royal advisors when you're in your glory. 
And he's like, uh, okay, I appreciate the question. No, you can't do that. You don't have a clue what you're asking. Listen to what he says. And he said to them, what do you want me to do for you? They said, grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. And Jesus said to them, you do not know what you're asking. <laughs> don't you love how gracious and kind he is? He's like, you have no clue what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And you know, listen, time out here. If you were a Jew and somebody talked to you about a cup or about being baptized, a cup meant one thing, wrath and judgment. It meant drinking to the dregs, suffering and pain and agony and wrath. And baptism meant being overwhelmed with sorrow and with pain and with judgment. So cup of wrath <clears throat> being overwhelmed and swallowed up with judgment. And he said, are you able to drink this cup and be baptized with this? And, and they said the most astonishing thing probably anywhere in the New Testament. They said, yes, sir, we are able. <laughs> and he's so gracious. He's so gracious. And he says, well, you know what? You are going to have a baptism. You are going to suffer. You know, James was the first martyr in the New Testament. He was killed by Herod. He got his head cut off. So he did drink a cup in a way. He said, you're going to be baptized and you're going to have a cup. And John, these are brothers, James and John. John was banished by the emperor Dominican for preaching the gospel. He was sent out to an island in the middle of the Mediterranean, the island of Patmos. <clears throat> but he was spared, you know, the execution that, that James suffered. He said, you're going to have a baptism and you're going to drink a cup. Um, but for me to be able to appoint you, that's already been determined by my father. And then he says this, <clears throat> verse 41. And when the ten heard it, <clears throat> the other ten disciples heard James and John asking for positions of power and influence, and they were mad that they didn't think of it. See, all the disciples, guys, were knuckleheads. They really were. They were mad that they didn't think of it first, so they're all arguing. And Jesus says, man, I've got to pull the car over again. So he pulled the car over, verse 41, and he said this. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to himself, and he said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And their great ones exercise authority over them, but it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many." So what's going on here? Jesus knows at the heart of their struggle is narcissism. They want to be great. They want to have authority. They want to wield influence, and they want to be admired and respected. That's what narcissism is. In fact, <clears throat> let me read this. This is from the Mayo Clinic, okay? Mayo Clinic's definition of something called NPD, Narcissistic Personality Disorder. It is a mental disorder in which people have an inflated sense of their own importance, and a deep need for admiration. They believe that they are superior to others and have little regard for other people's feelings. So Jesus knows their struggle is with narcissism. And he starts talking about his death again. Did you get that at the very end? For even the Son of Man has come, not to be served, but to serve. And to give his life as a ransom for many. He's talking about his death again. Guys, this is more gospel. James and John are talking about themselves, and Jesus is talking about his own death. Why? Because the only cure and antidote for narcissism is, is the cross. That's it. That's the only thing that will cure it. That's it. Somebody needs to tell that to the Mayo Clinic. I don't know if they know it yet. But. 
then it's okay. It's not their job. It's our job, right? Look what John Stott said. Nothing in history or in the universe cuts us down to size like the cross. Boom. That is so important to hear that. You want to be put in your place? Go to the cross, friend. Spend some time under the shadow of the cross. The ground is quite level there. There's no moral high ground under the cross. Nothing will shrink you down to size like the cross. It will humble you to the depths. But listen, it won't stop there. It will exalt you too to let you know you're so sinful, God had to do this for you. You're that bad off. But wait, he loves you so much, he was glad to do it. That's the message of the cross, right? All of us have inflated views of ourselves, especially in self-righteousness, until we have visited a place called Calvary. It is here at the foot of the cross that we shrink to our true size. Here's another guy that said it a different way. He said, if at the very heart of your world, if your whole worldview is a man dying for his enemies, then the way you're going to get influence in society is through service as opposed to power and control. Tim Keller is connecting this ransom and this, and this desire for greatness with Jesus talking about serving. Jesus connects his death with serving people. Now listen, we all want to be great. Let's just be honest. Let's just get it out there. We're all narcissists at different levels. We want to be great. We want to be admired. We want to feel important. We want people to serve us, Right? And Jesus says, yeah, so do all the Gentile rulers. You hear his little conversation about that. He said, you know, the Gentile rulers, they lord it over people. That's a powerful word in Greek. It's an electric word. It's, it's something like kata, uh, I can't even pronounce it. But it's really intense. It means to oppress people, to be a tyrant, to like helicopter, hover over people, micromanage everything they do, to be so, uh, so controlling that, that you're almost abusive. And he says, that's how the Gentile rulers, the Herods, the Pilots, the Caesars, that's how they seek to influence people. They intimidate them. They suppress them. They oppress them. They're deceitful. Do you know Tiberius Caesar was the emperor when Jesus said this? And he was the most perverse, corrupt, abusive man, so much so that when he died, the Romans danced in the streets and begged for his, for his corpse to be thrown into the Tiber River. And he's saying, you know how they rule. And Jesus turns the whole world upside down. And he says, it shall not be so with you. Whoever wants to be first is last. Whoever wants to be first is last. And if you want to be great, you serve. That's amazing. I can tell you this, guys. No other religion in the world holds that out as a way of thinking. No other religion. Pick one. You pick one, and it's usually fear, intimidation, call a jihad, whatever it is. And especially insane is Jesus uh, saying Christianity is so unique, it's so distinct, it's so different that there's a ransom that has to be paid and God himself is going to have to come and pay it because nobody else can. That's what he meant when he was saying to James and John, you're not able. They said we're able. He said, you can't afford this, guys. It's out of your price range. It's above your pay grade, trust me. Jesus starts talking about ransom. Do you know what ransom means? We don't really think of that word much unless we're watching a movie about a kidnapper, Right? Um, a ransom is something that you are paying to win back a slave or a prisoner. That's all it is. That's all that word means. It's a sacrificial price you are paying to win back a, uh, a slave or a prisoner. And there's an interesting word here that he uses. He says, let me see here, to give, the Son of Man, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The word for there is the word anti or anti, and it means instead of. 
So here's what Jesus is saying. The Son of Man, even the Son of Man didn't come to be served. Like all these emperors and Caesars and Herods and Pilots, they want to be served. Even the Son of Man, who's God in flesh, he didn't even come to be served. He came to serve and to give his life, to pay a ransom instead of somebody else having to pay it. Now check this out. I'm closing with this. Jesus paid a ransom for you and I to win us back, right? Instead of us having to pay it. Let me illustrate for you what this means. Jesus is standing between us and death. He's standing between us and the wrath of God. I read a story about a skydiver, um, actually a guy from Britain, who was, his name was Garrett. And he was a professional rugby player and he wanted to come to Florida and he wanted to skydive. That was like his bucket list, even though he was young. So he came to Florida, he trained, he found a guy named Michael Costello, who was a professional jumper, and he would let people jump tandem with him. You guys know what that means? Tandem? The professional, correct me if I'm wrong here, the professional is on top, and the rookie is strapped to their chest, right? And so uh, the person who's jumping for the first time is underneath. The ground is going to be what hits them first if something goes south. So Garrett, this rookie and rugby player, wanted to, wanted to skydive. So Michael Costello, they trained. He was a professional, and so they jumped. And things went south really fast, literally. <laughs> the, the first parachute it, it malfunctioned, okay? No big deal. There's a backup. There's always a backup. They pulled back up. It broke. Terrible. I mean, this is, we, we hear all, it just happened, I think, a couple of weeks ago, didn't it? Somebody else in the land. Yeah, died. Sky jumping over there in the airport. Oh, terrible. It's terrible. It happens all the time. But so the parachute didn't pull, the second parachute didn't pull, so they're plummeting to the earth. I don't know how many miles per hour. 5,000 feet, guys. 5,000 feet. Check this out. Seconds before they hit the ground. And I'm going to cry talking about this, even though I've never jumped out of an airplane in my life. Seconds before they hit the ground, this professional on top flipped his body, spun over, wrapped himself around Garrett and hit the ground first. And instantly it killed him. It instantly killed him. Broke his body to pieces. No way he could have survived. But, but, Garrett on top of him survived that fall. I don't know how. And just amazing. 5,000 feet. Maybe the parachute worked a little bit. I don't know. He walked away from that. Why? Because listen, <laughs> this guy paid a ransom for him. That's why. He put himself between this guy and death. And he did it on purpose. And he knew exactly, his, his widow wrote an article about it. She said, my husband knew exactly what he was doing. He was a professional. Only a few people can do that in midair, flip like that. He flipped, he wrapped his whole body around this rookie, and it saved his life. And I will submit to you, that's exactly what Jesus did for us. That's the ransom. He stood between us and the wrath of God, and he wrapped, he wrapped himself around us, and he absorbed it. He absorbed it. And man, that, Knowing that message, that ought to melt your heart and make you want to serve people and make you willing to receive criticism and make you launch out into the deeps and be willing to live your life for the king. That's the only message that has any power, guys. It will destroy your pride, destroy your narcissism, right? Do you think that guy that survived that wanted to find out more about the guy that saved his life? Think he wanted to honor him? I would imagine he did. How, how does that make you feel about Jesus knowing what he did for you? Voluntarily laid his life down and paid the ransom you couldn't possibly pay 
And he was glad to do it. He did it for the joy set before him, the Bible says. That's amazing. 